Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Sarah O'Connor, who is Employment Columnist at the Financial Times, and Jonathan Cribb, my colleague, who's a Senior Economist here at the IFS. And today we're going to be talking about the labour market, quite a big issue, but in particular the labour market and how it's developing through the current pandemic and what might happen as we go forward to employment, the structure of employment, what the impact of the furlough scheme might be, what might happen to unemployment. So a little bit of crystal ball gazing, but also a little bit of looking back at what's happened so far. We've had a year now where we've had millions of, I mean, literally millions of people on furlough. We think maybe, I don't know, what, three million people are still on furlough at the moment. Probably at least a million have been on furlough for the whole of the last year. Um, perhaps uh, I'll ask you each in turn to um, you know, give us your views about what might happen next. I mean, we've got the furlough scene gradually being phased out over the period from July, supposedly gone entirely by September. What's going to happen, Sarah? Well, I think the good news is that we're doing it now and not last October, which I'm sure you'll remember was the original plan. Uh, you know, if we had gone ahead and stopped the furlough scheme then, I think that would have been a disaster, really, because, you know, there were so many restrictions on activities still in place. It was clear that unemployment was going to rise quite quickly. I mean, there was this sort of strange narrative at the time coming from the government and others that sort of said, look, you can't prevent structural change from happening. A lot of these furlough jobs are actually zombie jobs, and it would be better for everyone if we just let the economy restructure. I don't think that would have been the right moment to do it because, you know, vacancies at that time were half of the previous level. There weren't enough jobs for people to go to. Um, so the fact that we're doing it now, I think, is much better because, we have now seen that vacancies are kind of recovering to pre-crisis levels. Hopefully by July, all restrictions will have been lifted. And so in that sense, I think we're less likely to see a sudden surge in unemployment. But what we don't know, of course, is how the kind of shape of the economy has changed. We don't know the extent to which online shopping will just become something that we all want to do forever are we still going to want to go to physical shops all of those sorts of things you know we haven't found out yet and they will have huge implications for both the number of jobs and the sectors in which they're in so I think it's going to be a really interesting time well I was in Kingston shopping centre yesterday I was absolutely chocker so I definitely think there is some some appetite remaining for um, face-to-face retail but uh, sorry Jonathan yeah, I think that uh, once we've realised that the vaccine programme was going well and, and the, the, the prospects for opening up were good, it, it made sense to wind finally down the, the, the furlough schema over the summer. I think the interesting thing about the summer will be how much are people unfurloughed, how much are people taken on by their old employers, and how much will the fact that slowly employers will have to pay more mean that uh, some people are, are, are made redundant after furlough. One of the good things about the furlough scheme is that to get people back to work, employers just you know essentially unfurlough them and, and bring them back. I think the, the interesting thing, though, is that there may well be some booming sectors and how well are going to people move 
uh, into those booming sectors over the summer. Now, come the autumn, furlough schemes over, and that should kind of happen properly. I wonder whether there might be any um, teething issues with that over uh, over the summer or not. Um, I think it's one of the kind of interesting things. And then I, I think what then happens at the very end of furlough is also the big unknown at the end of September. Um, you know, the, the official uh, government's forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility are a lot more rosy than they were uh, about its view about what will happen at the end of furlough. A tick up in unemployment, but not a, you know, dramatic uh, change. Uh, that's kind of a good deal rosier uh, forecast than was expected kind of last autumn. Uh, are predictions going to keep on getting rosier or, or, or is the, the OBR's view of, I think, about 6.5% unemployment in the, in the autumn uh, actually maybe looking a little bit over-optimistic given the number of people who have been furloughed for so long? I, I think those are the kind of key unknowns. I think it's worth saying, isn't it, that if we do end up with uh, unemployment peaking at 6.5%, that will be an astonishing result. I mean, we've just last year had on most numbers the sort of deepest recession in the whole of recorded history. Um, and if we end up with unemployment peaking 6.5%, that's less, much less than half where it was in the 1980s. It's well below where it was uh, in the 1990 recession, the 20, 2009 recession. To get away with that level... Um, of unemployment will be astonishing, um, an astonishing feat of policymaking, really. Are, are there any downsides? I mean, you, one says that, and then one sort of thinks, well, you know, my sort of, I don't know whether it's Protestant work ethic or something, thinks, well, you know, something's got to go wrong. I mean, that, it, can't, it can't can't be a free lunch. We can't, can't have got away with it completely. I mean, one of the costs that you've sort of, between you alluded to, is the possibility that we may have got people stuck in jobs that uh, perhaps they... Um, they shouldn't be in. But, uh, you know, otherwise, is this just a triumph of policy making, or are there some unintended consequences we should be looking for? Uh, well, it wasn't free, was it? It was pretty expensive. It's <laughs> um, the first thing to say. It's not to say that it wasn't a good idea, but it did cost us a lot of money. Um, I think it probably will turn out to have been good policy making. And it'll be really interesting to see whether this experience changes the way governments approach recessions in the future. I mean, obviously, this was a very unusual one in the sense that it was a it was a policy-induced recession, wasn't it? But I do wonder whether in future we might see these kinds of schemes being rolled out, at least um, in a kind of more restricted level, more generally. I mean, you know, Germany has always had sort of short work schemes and that helped them through the financial crisis. In terms of whether there are kind of unintended consequences here, I, mean, I suppose we don't know the extent to which People's sort of skills have atrophied over the last year. On the other hand, you know, they might have just realised that they want to do things a bit differently. There's a piece in the FT today talking about the struggle to hire chefs. And actually, a lot of chefs are saying, I used to have incredibly antisocial hours. I've got used to spending more time with my family and I quite like to keep a bit of that. Thank you very much. So it might be that we see a different appetite from employees in terms of the sort of work they are willing to accept. I mean, I think the only other thing that might be quite key with the end of furlough uh, and talking about, you know, these zombie jobs, maybe there is a, a secular decline in the high street that, that cannot be and maybe shouldn't be stopped. Uh, and, and maybe some people, maybe that's what you're thinking about zombie jobs. I wonder whether 
you know, there is still a case for some sectors to be supported, even, I mean, the labour market as a sector to be supported after the end of furlough. I'm thinking particularly of pretty much everything to do with international travel. Might, one would hope that that is a long-term viable uh, industry, um, which has, you know, some, some people are going to have important skills in there. There's going to be a lot of capital uh, in some of those businesses. Now, maybe those jobs are not viable for winter 2021, but hopefully they should be uh, for the long term. I wonder if there's something more targeted that needs to be thought about, maybe the travel sector in, in particular. It's been a striking feature of the whole furlough scheme, hasn't it, that uh, the Treasury has absolutely set its face against the idea of targeting furlough on any particular sector or um, or anything else. It's, it's been absolutely... Uh, across the board. I mean, they claim that it would be too administratively difficult uh, to do anything differently and uh, possibly uh, contravening some international rules on um, supporting particular industries. But I think you're right that, you know, we are going to be in a position, surely, where most of the economy, we hope, is somewhat back to normal, but with quite specific sectors that are still struggling. And to have a across-the-board scheme in that situation would look like overkill, um, and therefore, some more targeted help might be uh, might be important. In terms of the sort of longer term issues, I mean, I wonder whether um, just getting into a sort of slightly broader issue about the labour market. We've had what fifteen years now, pretty much, um, with no earnings growth um, at the median, at the uh, at the middle of the distribution. Um, at the same time as a, um, a labour market which has done incredibly well in terms of creating jobs. Um, so, you know, even pre-pandemic, a pretty accurate description of the previous decade would have been great at producing jobs, terrible at producing pay rises. To what extent, Sarah, do you think one is the flip side of the other? Are we kind of getting poor pay increases as part of the same policy, same response as we're getting high levels of employment? I mean, can we only have one or the other? I don't know. I mean, certainly that has been the way in which it has gone over the last 10 years, as you say. And I I find it hard to imagine that we'll suddenly see a a change in that after the recession. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think for some reason that seems to be the way the UK economy is functioning at the minute. And no one particularly understands why, but it, it seems as if we're very good at kind of dragging people into work um, and not very good at kind of progressing them up the ranks. So I don't know if there's any way of sort of shifting that. I mean, there have been various attempts, haven't there, over the last few years. Certainly the national living wage has pushed up wages very quickly right at the bottom. But again, what we haven't seen is, is a big kind of ripple effect through the distribution that has basically meant the floor has raised and there's just a bigger and bigger bunch of people sitting on that floor. So there's only so much, I think, that policy can do directly to change that dynamic i mean i i've sat in meetings for well i don't know seven eight years now talking to people about progression uh in the labor market and and, and earnings growth and it does still feel like a big black box for, for most people in work um where you can't kind of use you know what might be the blunt instrument of a minimum wage is, is not going to help the middle um, if there is some trade-off in terms of policies that might boost earnings but 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 lower employment, I mean that 
the the good thing about more employment is that in general higher employment means lower income inequality in general at the margin people who are brought into work or have been brought into work are from the poorer end of the income distribution you know over the kind of period of uh over the last 10 years or so you know the the incomes of poorer people have been supported by higher in employment growth even as they've been reduced by reductions to to, to benefit entitlements um so that's not to take a too positive view of it, except to say that, that, that those 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 high employment levels do have have beneficial consequences for particularly for the for the lower uh, end of the income distribution. Absolutely, but it's clearly going to be a you know a continued challenge to ensure that earnings do hopefully do a bit better over the next decade than they have over over the last. It seems one of the features of the last year as well has been a pretty big outflow of um, immigrant labour. Um, it's pretty hard to get a real handle on the numbers. Um, there have been some quite big numbers knocking around, suggesting more than a million people may have left the country. I think uh, I think that's probably not quite right. But, but Sarah, do you have any views as to, you know, how actually how big an issue that may have been so far? Uh, and also, you know, this sort of uncertainty as to whether people are leaving because of Brexit or leaving because of the pandemic or some combination of the two and the chances of them coming back and indeed what the consequences would be if they don't? Well, I think a lot of them won't come back because immigration policy has just changed massively. I mean, we've left the European Union. From now on, immigrants below a certain pay level won't won't be allowed to come. Um, and that, I think, will have huge implications for some sectors in the economy. It'll be really interesting to see how it pans out. I mean, there are some sectors that have become very reliant on lower paid migrants. They're the ones that uh, won't be able to come back. Um, Things like agriculture, food processing, um, these really rely on the inflow of migrants, not just that you need a stock of migrants. They they kind of rely on people coming over. They do these jobs. They're pretty awful jobs, let's be fair. They do them for six months or a year, and then they, they go home or they move on to something better. And so actually the flow does matter. And it's not clear to me exactly how those sectors will adjust to cope. I mean, people who voted Brexit might well say, well, this is what we wanted. This will force employers to raise pay, raise conditions to attract um, native workers. And that and that would be a good thing. Uh, it's possible that will happen. But I think that that slightly underplays the extent to which these jobs have become very designed around migrant labour in terms of the security that they offer, uh, in terms of the pay levels, the way in which it's quite hard to sustain a kind of normal family life while doing one of these jobs. And we saw that very clearly last summer. I don't know if you remember the um, pick for Britain scheme where farms said, oh, help, we've not got any migrants to pick the fruit. Uh, Let's get some Brits in to do it. And, you know, that should have been a perfect moment um, to test that thesis because you had huge numbers of people on furlough, so they had nothing else to do. The borders were closed. Um, But what happened was the farms still really struggled to get people in. Lots of people applied, but few people, very few, lasted for an entire season. And that's because the work is just fundamentally not designed for people who live here full time. And so it would require a massive change in how those jobs work. Or, and I think, frankly, this is more likely 
these sectors will successfully lobby the government for exemptions to the immigration rules. So you're already seeing that in agriculture now. There's a temporary migrant scheme which allows people to come in from places like Russia and Ukraine for a limited period of time and then go straight home. And I think we'll probably end up with quite a lot of migrants coming in on these quite restrictive visas to do the jobs that um, will continue not to be done by Brits. I actually did a one one week fruit picking in my uh, summer between um, school and university a very long time ago. It was blooming hard work. It was great fun because everyone was put up in a sort of, it was almost like a sort of holiday camp type thing. But the, the, the Brits there didn't do very well in terms of picking the fruit, but we had great fun. But there were lots of um, lots of uh, people from Southern and Eastern Europe even then who picked about 12 times as much as the Brits and actually made some money out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps they just need to reinvent these as uh, sort of working holidays and uh, provide lots of free beer. <laughs> the, um, but the uh, but it is is very striking, isn't it? How 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 much the economy and the labour market has it's just changed dramatically over the last fifteen years. I and mean, we have um, you know, million, literally millions more foreign born workers than we had at the turn of the century, and that just means we have an economy that's very different to the economy we would have had absent those. And uh, if we're going to move back away from that, that could be quite, uh, as you're suggesting, Sarah, could be really quite disruptive. Now let's um, let's move on to another issue which has been very much at the forefront of sort of discussions of policy over the last decade and more, but actually particularly over the last year, which is the impact on, on, on younger people. I mean, Jonathan, you've um, done quite a lot of work on this. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that um, the the last year has had a much bigger effect on the uh, employment and employment prospects of actually particularly the under 25s than it has of more more middling age yeah i mean i think there's there's a kind of triple whammy i see it for for for, for younger uh, adults um one is one's actually the normal recession thing you know in recessions what happens is is generally vacancies can dry up very very quickly and the people who really need vacancies are people without work. And by definition, uh, thankfully, we all start childhood not in work. Uh, and so as we make that progression into adulthood and into work, we need to find one. So there's there's the kind of first whammy that young younger adults are just hit when vacancies come down. Um, that's going to be more dramatic now, but it, but it is always a kind of feature of recessions. Then there's the second whammy, which I think is the fact that the the industries hit by lockdown, by social distancing, uh, are particularly those that employ a lot of of younger adults, your retails and your hospitalities. Now, a lot of younger people then make their way out of those industries into often better paying ones. But that kind of first step into the job market um, people have been and, and basically furloughed from 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 that first step. So that's the kind of second thing. And then the third thing that I think in the longer run is probably the the biggest thing is just that lots of people have had their education uh, disrupted. That's not you know university students, school school leavers, and particularly people anybody who had to have any form of workplace training, um, apprenticeships, uh, these kind of things that that. Uh, that are actually particularly important for kind of people often uh, from you know lower socioeconomic backgrounds who don't go on to university 
more important for boys. And so these kind of uh, training schemes, workplace-based training schemes are hit as well. So I think that's how I see that triple the triple problem the the last one is probably the less obvious and probably less big now but in a sense probably will grow over the future is that that's likely to have longer term impacts than the others i wish i could come in and say actually it's all going to be great but i do i do basically agree with jonathan's analysis there i mean it it should be said that right now we are seeing suddenly a big boom in vacancies for things like hospitality and retail and those are the sectors that traditionally absorb a lot of young workers and absorb a lot of people from unemployment to employment. But of course, they're not necessarily good jobs. They're not necessarily jobs that are going to help you up the ladder. I mean, we saw after the last recession, a lot of graduates ending up in non-graduate jobs. And I think it's fair to assume we'll see the same thing again. I mean, a lot of graduates who are going to graduate this summer will be competing against not only their cohort, but all the people from the previous year, many of whom didn't find work in the depths of the pandemic, uh, lots of whom did what they call panic masters. You know, they just went and got another degree because <laughs> it made sense to sit it out for a year. Yeah, my son did exactly out. that. <laughs> Sorry. My son did Your exactly son. that. But luckily he yeah. did it in Barcelona, so he hasn't had a bad year. Well, he sounds like he's had a good time. Um, but yeah, it means there'll be lots of people clamouring for not enough graduate level jobs. I mean, now graduate job postings are only 60% of pre-pandemic levels and the supply of graduates will be higher. So I think it will be tough. I mean, the FT just ran a, a survey of our young readers under 35s. Um, and I read through all of the responses and it was fascinating to see the sort of psychological impact that a big recession has on you if it happens just as you enter the labour market. Um, you know, people who just feel very viscerally insecure and that they're in constant competition with other people. And even those people who actually have managed to get good jobs, they're sort of clinging to some sense of security. And we know that, you know, young people aren't moving around between jobs as much as they used to, you know, that for some reason, they'd rather just stick where they are, because at least they've got something, than try and sort of hop around a bit and get promotions and new experiences. And, and so I think that the psychological impact of the last recession was stark. And I think the same will be true of this one. Well, that's an interesting thought, the psychology of um, growing up, as it were, or entering the labour market in difficult uh, times. Well, they, they one does feel they're sort of regular different, difficult times. I mean, I entered the labour market in the 1980s, which was, a, you know, in many ways, a very difficult time. And um, we had the 1990s recession. I suppose we had 20... 15 or 20 years of relatively good times up until 2008-2009. But um, it would be very interesting to study the sort of long-term effects on psychology and on moving between jobs of um, of, of that sort of thing. Um, but I guess that sort of, um, I mean, in a way, that brings us on quite nicely to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is that certainly pre-pandemic, despite these concerns about insecurity and so on, there'd been a long-term trend to more self-employment um, and what people think of as non-standard forms of um, of work. Uh, some of it positive, some of it clearly the choices that people were making in order to have more freedom and flexibility, and some of it I think there's pretty good evidence to show um, because that's all the only thing that people could find. I mean, uh, a lot of self-employed actually start off in self-employment after a period 
being out of work. Um, and this, of course, is a group that's, um, to some extent, found the last year particularly difficult. Um, so do we know anything about, or Jonathan, do you have any views about where we might be going with self-employment from here? I mean, there, there seems to be some evidence that self-employment has kind of dropped during the, the crisis itself. I think it's it, it's even harder thing to measure, in a sense, over the kind of pandemic period than kind of regular employment where you've got an interaction with an employer. You know, if if you're not working very much for yourself, maybe you're getting a size payment, um, maybe you are, you know, making use of those payments to have, have a nice time with your children or or to look for, you know, think about future um, career opportunities. I guess what I'm saying is there there seems to be some evidence that it's done worse, but it, it's hard hard to, to kind of be really, really concrete on that. I think the longer term thing is I would be astonished if the longer term trend didn't basically can continue back again. We seem to have some technologies which make it easier to undertake gig work than, than it was before. And uh, we have a tax system which continues to incentivize the kind of production of a lot of economic activity in, in a self-employed form or a contractor form rather than uh, in employee form. You know, I, I think much to the extent that some of this is uh, disguised unemployment, then maybe it's, uh, there will be a kind of cyclical element to it. But I'd be surprised if the long-term uh, trends were, were kind of blown a- apart by the pandemic, um, you know, once we're looking two or three years up from now. I don't know what Sarah thinks. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, as as Paul says, you really want to distinguish two groups here who, who are quite different, um, people who've chosen to be self-employed and people who are doing it as a last resort, or indeed people who are classed as self-employed, but really are more or less employees that aren't being given the appropriate um, employment rights. And, you know, to that extent, I think some of the sectoral shifts that we're seeing in the economy now might accelerate some of that. So online retail, for example, relies quite heavily on self-employed drivers to deliver all of the parcels to our houses. Um, and so there, there will be some areas in which self-employment will probably grow. I mean, I suppose the only counter argument would be that some self-employed people have probably discovered over the past year that actually being self-employed is pretty risky <laughs> when something dramatic and difficult happens and that the, the safety nets such as they are are often structured to help employed people much more smoothly and easily than self-employed. So it might have made some people think twice about the wiseness of being self-employed. But I think Overall, yeah, the structural stuff is probably um, going to just accelerate the trend. And as you say, unless something changes in terms of the tax treatment, there will always be an incentive to structure work this way in the UK. And Sarah, whilst, um, you know, Jonathan and I and our colleagues at the IFS have, you know, looked at these changes to employment structures from an economic and statistical point of view, I think that you as a, a journalist have actually got out there and seen some of what it's really like to be on zero hours contracts and to be in very insecure self-employed kind of work. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the sort of human cost of some of this can be or indeed some of the human benefits? Yeah, I mean, to take zero hours contracts, for example, which isn't quite the same as self-employment, but is certainly another kind of insecure way of working. 
I mean, I was talking recently to a domiciliary care worker on the zero hours contract who only finds out the night before by text message how much work she'll have the next day, how many clients she needs to go and see. She then has to check her phone multiple times through the day to check whether that's changed, whether there are suddenly more people to see or fewer. Um, Sometimes she actually is overworked. It's not necessarily, sometimes these kinds of contracts are are conflated with underemployment. That's not necessarily the case. It's the unpredictability of work that's problematic. I mean, it just makes it so difficult for her to know whether she can pay her mortgage at the end of the month, also to arrange childcare. I mean, some of her colleagues with young children end up taking them in the car with them and just leaving them sitting watching the iPad while they nip into clients to do their 15-minute visits. So, yeah, I mean, when it's um, insecurity of that kind, it's hugely problematic for people's lives. Mm. It's, uh, and, and, and there's clearly, uh, as we've said, quite a lot more, um, quite a lot more of it. Um, and I suppose that you know we're, we're we're coming to the end of our time, and I think you know we should be thinking about what next. I mean, in terms of you know, it, there's quite a lot of evidence, I think, or at least there's quite a lot of consensus that this this year. Um, this extraordinary year we've had may mostly serve to accelerate trends that were happening or were going to happen in any case, whether that be a move from high street retail to online retail, whether it be a, you know, making happen over a year, what might have happened over a decade in terms of more, a little bit more working or maybe significantly more working from home. I mean, where, where do you think this leaves um Policy. I mean, what what ought to be the uh, priorities of, of government now as we move, hopefully, to um, the end of restrictions, a new labour market settling down in a shape we still don't, we're still not very sure about, but one where we're concerned that um, wage growth might still be rather slow. There's still quite a lot of insecurity. Training may not be still where we want it. I mean, what would you be advising you know, government on as the key policy uh, requirements in, in, in the labour market? I guess the first thing that came out of my, when you're asking this is, is I worry a bit that, that the national living wage has become the, the policy and almost the only policy in, in the area. And I worry about that because it can't achieve everything. It can't solve poverty. It literally, you know, it can't. Uh, it, the issues of poverty are far more complex than the number of people on low hourly pay. Um, but it's kind of been so, so, such a big policy, and it's been continued to, you know, extended now into the, you know, up to two thirds of median pay by the mid twenty twenties. So, you know, that's even before you get on to whether it leads to lower unemployment or whether the demands on the job that become from a higher minimum wage are, are, are bad for, you know, workers. I, I just worry that the government has this kind of particular focus on this one policy rather than thinking about others. And, and others might not necessarily be about um, actually the labour market itself. If you're worried about issues about low low pay, you know, some of those reasons you're going to be worried about that is because there are poor people. And maybe you want to be worrying about their housing costs or, you know, or or the benefit entitlements that they get as much as you worry about their their pay. So I guess that's kind of my my big thing is, you know, let's not have everything about the the national living wage. And indeed, 
maybe some of the things you worry about in the labour market, maybe they can be ameliorated with other policy areas. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, in fact, I'd go a bit further and say that I think in some ways the national living wage, while I support it, has exacerbated some of these other problems. I mean, that there is evidence to suggest that as you push up that wage floor, it incentivizes employers to try and vary people's hours more, for example, to match supply with demand and you know, to compress labour costs in other ways to cope with the fact that the, the floor is rising. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it, but we should be thinking about things beyond that one lever, as Jonathan says. Um, I mean, I think it's worth looking more at what's happening in the US where a lot of cities now, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, have rolled out fair work week laws, which try and get to the problem of unpredictable scheduling. They basically require employers to give a couple of weeks notice. And then if you want to vary a schedule more short term than that, you can do, but you have to kind of pay a premium um, in return. So, you know, there are other things that you can do, regulatory tweaks that don't have to be hugely expensive, but might actually make quite a difference to people's lives and sense of security. The other thing I would probably say is that the government could think about leaning in to some of the shifts the pandemic has brought that we might think are actually quite positive. So remote working, for example, a lot of people like it. A lot of people don't want to go back to working full time in the office. And rather than sort of lecturing them that they ought to go back, I think the government should think about the opportunity here to try and sort of take the heat out of city labour markets, city housing markets. You know, if we can distribute well-paid workers further out into the rest of the country, that would be a good thing. And so you might want to think about policies that could support that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting thought, isn't it? I mean, we um, we focus a lot on the, the worries and the negatives, but there are um, opportunities here. I, I don't know how big they are. I mean, there are reasons that people congregate in cities, and there clearly are benefits from that. Um, uh, but those may have changed because uh, of technology, which allows us to work at least some of the time um, away from home, uh, away from the office, rather. Uh, and I think it's rather interesting what you both say, actually, about the role of the national living wage becoming too central and the unintended consequences of it, uh, where the case, oddly enough, for more regulation to patch up some of the unintended consequences may be quite uh, may, 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 may be quite well made. Um, there's clearly going to be a whole series of other issues uh, for us to deal with. And I think one of the uncertainties over the coming years is that we are going through a lot of change. I mean, we're clearly going through change, as we've discussed, as a result of Brexit and the changing, not just changing immigration, but also changing trading patterns, which will result in uh, some jobs going uh, and, and, and having to reappear elsewhere. We've got less immigration, uh, probably, as we've said. Um, we've got the, the 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 impact of this pandemic, which at, you know, will probably be bringing forward change much more quickly than it otherwise would have happened. And also um, issues you've been writing about in the Financial Times in the last day or two, Sarah, um, with respect to us uh, moving to a net zero green economy, which um, you know will result in the end of some jobs in manufacturing, mining, refining. Um, mending petrol vehicles and um, the introduction of new jobs in new areas. And it's not clear that uh, the numbers of jobs will be the same or it'll be the same people who can do them. So we've got big challenges 
there as well. Um, and uh, I don't see uh, much in the way of uh, newness or creativity in some of the policy responses that we're getting to that. And I think that may um, cause us problems because whilst labour markets do in the end adjust, uh, those adjustments can be long and painful and they can, as we saw the fallout from the 1980s, leave people in a very bad place for a very long time. Um, so uh, it really is going to need uh, the right kind of government policy uh, to deal with that. But we're well past the end of our allotted half hour um, or so. So I will say uh, now thank you so much to Jonathan and especially to Sarah uh, for joining me. Thank you um, for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe uh, and rate us. For all our latest work, please visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support our work, do consider becoming a supporter of the IFS uh, for just £5 a month. You can find a link with further information in the episode description. Thank you for listening and stay well.